Hey, Ruckus Maker. You know, I'm thrilled, absolutely thrilled that you're here because this is your show. I serve you. And since you're a ruckus maker, that means you're an out-of-the-box leader making change happen in education. So we really have a treat because today's guest, Richard Shell, is an absolute expert when it comes to making change and living out your values. Uh, the conversation that we start with, the entry point is uh, a change initiative that he was tasked at doing regarding a, an incredibly large organization steeped in tradition. Does that sound familiar? Is that something that you're experiencing? However, Richard's approach possibly is different than yours. Many leaders I serve or leaders I, I meet, they are so inspired by the vision of the future, which is an ideal version of a future that we should want to make a reality. We forget how hard the work is, how, how much we have to build trust and relationships with the human beings we lead, and that's a mistake. We cram the initiative down people's throats instead of uh, letting it slowly simmer and come to a boil to where it's their idea. So you'll want to listen to this uh, conversation because it's a fascinating conversation. There's tons of practical advice, and it's absolutely going to make you a better leader. Hey, it's Daniel, and welcome to the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast, a show for ruckus makers, those out-of-the-box leaders making change happen in education. And we'll be right back after these messages from our show sponsors. Learn how to successfully navigate change, shape your school's success, and lead your teams with Harvard's Certificate in School Management and Leadership. Get world-class Harvard faculty research specifically adapted for pre-K through 12 schools. Self-paced online professional development that fits your schedule. Apply now for our February 2022 cohort at slash harvard Better Leaders, Better Schools is brought to you by school leaders like Principal Gutierrez using TeachFX. Special populations benefit the most from verbally engaging in class, but get far fewer opportunities to do so than their peers, especially in virtual classes. TeachFX measures verbal engagement automatically in virtual or in-person classes to help schools and teachers address these issues of equity during COVID. Learn more and get a special offer from Better Leaders, Better Schools listeners at teachfx.com forward slash BLBS. That's teachfx.com forward slash BLBS. All students have an opportunity to succeed with Organized Binder, who equips educators with a resource to provide stable and consistent learning, whether that's in a distance, hybrid, or traditional educational setting. Learn more at organizedbinder.com. Hey, hey, Ruckus Maker. Today, I'm joined by G. Richard Schell, a global thought leader and senior faculty member at one of the world's leading business schools, the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. He serves as a chair of Wharton's Legal Studies and Business Ethics Department, the largest department of its kind in the world. His forthcoming book, or actually it's been released as this uh, show has been recorded, uh, The Conscious Code, 
Lead with your values, advance your career, addresses an increasingly urgent problem in today's workplace. Standing up for core values such as honesty, fairness, personal dignity, and justice when the pressure is on to look the other way. Well, welcome to the show, Richard. Danny, I really appreciate your having me. Thank you. Yeah, this is going to be a great conversation. You know, I, I say uh, leading is easy um, when when the road is smooth and that kind of thing. And, you know, when uh, when stuff gets off track and the temperature is turned up, right, that's when we see what we're really made of. And so this conversation I know is going to uh, add so much value um, to the ruckus maker listening. And so... Talking about, you know, turning up the pressure a little bit and turning up the heat, uh, you were tasked to, to lead quite an extensive change initiative at Wharton. I was. And I know, yeah, took a handful of years. You caused a lot of ruckus doing it. Um, but can you introduce and, and share that story uh, with our listener? Like, what were you tasked with and what was the context of that challenge? Sure. Thank you. Well, the Wharton School is the first collegiate business school of business in the world, 1881. I've uh, been going a long time, has an MBA program, PhD program. It's a pretty complicated uh, institution within the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, but education is our business, just like the education is the business of most of your listeners. And change in an educational institution, I think, is one of the most difficult things to do. When I was I set off, I was <clears throat> appointed by the dean to chair this committee to review and uh, change the MBA program curriculum and culture. And the joke that I picked up from someone in New York City uh, about this sort of effort was that changing a curriculum in an academic environment is like moving a cemetery. Many <laughs> of the things in the cemetery are dead, but they have a lot more friends who are still alive. Hmm. Uh, and so that proved to be true. I think whenever you're dealing with institutional dynamics that favor the status quo, the way we've done it, the way we do it, the way it works, and you're trying to you know, kind of get people to think about a new way of uh, conducting themselves. And, and in, especially in education, where we all have some relative degree of autonomy, at least in some of the things we do in our classrooms. And here comes someone else is going to tell us to do something that, you know, we had very little to say about. It's a, it's a big challenge. And it did take a couple of years. I would say, you know, I teach negotiation and persuasion as well as author books like The Conscience Code. And these, uh, these skills that I teach and that I've uh, learned over the years, I'm a former lawyer too, as a, a fully recovered lawyer now, but I was once upon a time a lawyer. And all these skills that sort of organizational effectiveness, interpersonal dynamics proved to be really the most important things that I turned to rely on. And, you know, it matters who's in your social network. It matters who trusts you. It matters what kind of information you can get from people that's true. I mean, you know, you can talk to people in an organization, especially in a school district or in a, a school administration, and most of them will tell you, you know, whatever it is they think you want to hear. But will they tell you the actual truth? Will they tell you what's really bothering people or what's really got people, you know, torn up and twisted up in pretzels? Well, they won't if they don't trust you. And so a lot of what I did for the two years it took me to lead this process and ended up with a vote. I mean, we had to get 250 faculty members at the Wharton School to vote this in, this new program. We got 85% of the faculty to vote for it. 
So it's a pretty political process. It was a lot of one-on-ones, a lot of lunches, a lot of heart-to-hearts, a lot of getting past the obvious to the unstated. You know, another one of my favorite quotes in uh, sort of organizational effectiveness is something the banker J.P. Morgan said way back in the 19th century. Uh, He said, there are two reasons for everything a person does, a good reason and the real reason. And your job as a leader is to find out what the real reason is. Uh, And that requires you to have relationships, requires you to have people's trust, requires you to be um, a reliable partner for them so that you have their back. And so I would say it was all that, plus a lot of imagination. You know, we, we, you know, we, we, we consulted broadly across the whole business school environment, took uh, ideas from here and there that we thought would work in the work and culture. Every school has its own little culture, its own little way of processing and who they are. And, uh, and then a lot of uh, trial balloons, a lot of focus groups, a lot of how could we make this better? This is a new idea. Do you have any thoughts? It's time-consuming work, a lot of listening and mm-hmm. patience. But at the end of the day, you know, we got it done. And the school's been running with it for a few years now. It's student satisfaction is up, faculty satisfaction is up. And we're still, uh, you know, depending on the poll, number one, two, or three in the world as a business school. So, right. so we, didn't, we didn't, and we were number one, two, or three when we started. So we weren't dealing with a broken system. We were taking a, a functioning system, which is one of the objections people had. Wait a minute, it's not broke. Why fix it? You know, yeah. but, but we hadn't changed the school in 25 years. We hadn't done anything to change any of these required courses or the way the program is sequenced or how we allowed students to make choices. And, you know, we, it's, it's, uh, it's one of these things where if you don't keep getting better, you're going to fall behind. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Um, and so we pulled it off and we're still ahead. You know, when, when a principal takes over a failing school, in some respects, I feel like it's somewhat of an easy job because the case for change is so apparent. And when you're performing, like you said, top one, two or three business school in the, you know, in the world, uh, that case is even more difficult. But to hear that the consensus, 85 percent of a 250 person staff was on board just speaks to the diligence, right, and relationship and trust that you built uh, and then to hear, like, I just, I love, you know, here's change that's happening. And as a result, uh, the faculty and the students are enjoying the experience even more, right? Because yeah. that's sometimes a fear, especially with a high performing organization. What's that going to do to the quality of program that we're offering? But here it, it improved, which is well, amazing. I think one of the reasons that it worked was because I started, I, I did my preliminary due diligence and then I started with two assumptions. And, and they were non-negotiable. One was we were not going to lead an initiative to make the students learn. And the other was we're not going to lead an initiative to make the faculty change. And, you know, I just viewed, you know, a program that you're going to design to make the students learn is going to fail uh, because, you have to bring students along. Education, you know, the word means bring it out of you. It doesn't mean cram it into you. <laughs> and so, so I wanted that to be non-negotiable. We're not going to force this issue. We're going to create incentives and environmental changes that are going to incite, excite the students into learning mode. And then I know higher education faculty, they got tenure. You're not going to tell them to do anything. You've got to accept who they are, accept what their values are, accept what their uh, kind of 
priorities are, and then craft a system that brings out their best uh, for this aspect of their work. Uh, and, and in our case, that meant allowed them more freedom to teach things that they wanted to teach, allow them uh, more control uh, over the different courses that they had so that they could teach to their strengths and not teach to some PowerPoint deck that someone handed them. Uh, now, I know in public schools, uh, especially, this is a really tough sell because there's a political process, there's state regulations, and there's all kinds of constraints that are put on teachers. I've, I've worked a lot with high school teachers and principals over the years. Because of my negotiation expertise, I've been brought in for, uh, you know, uh, the American Federation of Teachers and a bunch of other things. I've actually consulted with the AFC. But even so, there's the marginal degree of improvement that a good program will seek out and create white space in order for people to improvise. Uh, and that's going to be where the win is. What I love about what you shared there, too, and something that really resonated with me, you know, we, we have change agents. I, I believe I attract these kind of people to the show or my leadership community. You know, they're ruckus makers. That's the right. whole, whole point of it. Uh, but to get excited about the initiative and the change you're proposing and not cramming it down people's throats uh, is an interesting tension. Right. Yeah. I think we too often get so excited about the vision, uh, how things can improve we forget about the human beings, you know, we're dealing with. So um, one, you were working with a ton of people, 250. And two, I think because of your uh, human-centered approach, uh, that's part of the reason it took you two years, you know, to get the, the change through. I, I'd love to ask you uh, about some of the practical things you did. I heard you say a lot of lunches, a lot of one-on-ones. I think you might even mention a term I've never heard before, like trial balloons or something. I could be totally yeah. making that up. No, no, no. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I spent, if you had to divide this process up into two buckets, the first year was spent deciding what to do. And the second year was spent selling the idea in to people so they'd vote for it. <laughs> Uh, and I think it's one of the weaknesses of, of uh, people who haven't had the kind of training I have in negotiation and influence to think that once you have the right idea, game over. And of course, everybody's going to say yes. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's where the fun begins. So the, the trial balloon is something you do between those two stages. So you think you do, you've come up with a design or an idea that's better. And, and perfect is never the goal. Better is always the goal. Better on some important dimensions. And then you go out to your constituencies and you float the idea in a trial balloon and like, you know, you blow it up and put some air in it and then drift it over them and say, what do you think about that? How do you think that might work? And, you know, get their input and they go, well, it's okay. Probably got to be a little smaller, maybe a different color. You know, might be fun if we take shots at it, you know, whatever, whatever the uh, feedback is. And then you do that with multiple stakeholders. And then you come back and say, OK, where's the convergence point on this input about this this part of what we want to do? And you realize that actually everybody pretty much agrees that this part of whatever it is is good idea. You know, they're willing to buy into that. And then this group has a problem with this part of it. And that group has part of this other thing. And this group wants it to start at eight in the morning. And that group wants to, you know, end at five in the afternoon. And, and so then you realize where the conflict is. So then you, you, you seize on the convergence points 
and bake them in. It's going to be solid. And then you look at the trade-offs that the others are presenting you and go, well, okay, we know there's multiple dimensions and this group is going to lose on this uh, aspect of the thing. Where can we give them a win that on balance will make them think the whole thing is still a better idea than not? And then you have to go back to the group that's going to get a win on this and you have to tell them, we're going to go along with your suggestion on this because we think it's the right thing to do. And, but you're going to have to recognize that you're not going to win on all of these. And this is going to be a big win for you. And I want to make sure that your people know that they've gotten something here and uh, they value it and they don't just, you know, think that it's all about the things they didn't get. It's about the stuff they did get and the disappointment about some of the things they didn't, but you have to really kind of treasure it a little so that the people you're dealing with who are the leaders in these constituencies have the tools to sell it in as a victory that was hard fought. They didn't, it was not, it was possible. They weren't going to get it, but they did get it, that it, it's a worthy high priority for them. They should vote in favor because, and then you go back to it's not a perfect world. You can't have it all. And we're getting some stuff here and we're going to have to give some stuff up to. So, you know, it's deeply political, but political, I think, is, a you know, I, I believe in politics, in organizations, it's people. Nobody raises their hand when you say, do you like politics in an organization? No, 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 no. Get it away. No, no. Someone else. But my view is politics is inevitable in organizations. Mm -hmm. It's not whether there's going to be politics. It's only are you skilled and effective at managing it or not? Right. And, and so you have to have some patience and a little bit of a kind of a, a little bit of a gleeful attitude about it. Like we're going to make this work. We don't know exactly how we're going to make it work yet, but we're going to make it work because we're going to be a force like a, a prow of a boat and we're crossing this channel and we're not sure what rocks are in the way. We may have to like steer a little left, steer a little right, but we're not stopping. Mm. We're the force that can't be stopped. And as long as you cut, you know, have that attitude and you have a little fun with it, then I think you get the energy. You have setbacks, you have bad days, but you're, you know, you're, you're learning as you go. That's always important. You can never learn enough about human beings and their needs. People always surprise you in good ways as well as bad. And if you, if you take that attitude, you know, I like to say in my negotiation classes, which is a shock to many of the people that take them, no negotiation is ever over. Hmm. Never. It's just another chapter in a book called The Relationship. And even in negotiations that don't look like relationships, like uh, going to buy a Toyota at a Toyota dealership, it's actually, from the point of view of the dealership, a relationship. And so as long as you take that attitude that no negotiation is ever over, it's just another chapter in the book, you'll have more patience. You'll see that you lose today, win tomorrow. And you build that trust that is the magic sauce that makes it into something that uh, makes life better for everybody. Right, right. I like uh, the Toyota example, too, because, um, you know, something that I did recently, and I'm just going to unpack this real quick. And speaking of J.P. Morgan, so I opened a business banking account with Chase, right? So, okay. uh, so it was local and whatever, just made the decision. I had a very good experience. And so uh, what I did I wanted to go above and beyond in uh, showing gratitude for that experience. So I quickly just shot a video, 
highlighted my business manager, put it on LinkedIn, tagged her and the, her supervisor, et cetera. And nobody does that, right? It went, it went, it wouldn't go viral, but in terms of people who care about that, it went crazy. And I'll tell you what, with a mask on because of COVID and stuff, I could walk into the bank. Everybody comes and says hello to me. And I didn't do it out of a selfish reason because no, no, I mean, no. you know, but uh, I get even better service just because I went above and beyond and uh, just wanted to highlight great things, you know? Well, uh, I, you know, I couldn't agree more, Danny. Yeah. The Toyota dealership near my house, I went even further than you did. Okay, and tell me, la- I want to learn. <laughs> the, la- the last time I bought a car, yeah. Which I don't, I, I buy, I, you know, I'm not a fancy guy. I bought a Toyota Camry, you know, but I, I uh, work with the salesperson, you know, I'm a negotiator. So I, you know, I, I ask <laughs> right. for stuff, you know, yep. but he, but I try to be really uh, thoughtful and respectful of people in their professional careers and their, and mm-hmm. their jobs. And a salesperson at a car dealership has just got a job like the rest of us trying to make an honest living. He did such a good job as I saw it that I actually took him. When we signed the papers, I said, where's the owner of this dealership have their office? And he, he, he showed me. I said, I'd like to meet him. Uh, and so we went into the owner's office and I pointed to my salesperson. I said, you are so lucky to have this guy working for you. He's honest, transparent. He wants to solve problems. He's uh, just an excellent person with people. And so I just want to congratulate you on this person as an employee. And, you know, the owner stood up, he shook my hands, you know, he wanted to know all about me, blah, blah, blah. Then I said, thank you very much. And I said, where's your supervisor? And, and there were a group of people, uh, the managers were like gathered right. around having some sort of meeting. I took him into that meeting. I said, can I interrupt for just a second? I'm one of your customers. And they all stopped and looked at me. And I said exactly the same thing to the five guys that were all standing around, you know, doing whatever they were doing and pointing to my uh, salesperson. And then I shook his hand and I said, it's been a pleasure doing business with you. I got Christmas cards from this guy. I mean, you know, right. uh, you know, we're, but I felt honestly, that was true. You know, it was true. Right. And, and they don't get commended enough. They're usually, they see their customers and their customers think they're the enemy. You know, car salesmen have a, have a saying, uh, the saying is the customer always lies. Really? Okay. Yeah. And what do we think about the car salespeople? Yeah. That they're trying to get, they're all lying. Yeah. 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 And, and so you break through that. I've never met a bad negotiation situation. It can't be fixed by a great relationship. Mm. And, uh, and so I always just try to, you know, leave a good name because I know I'm going to return wherever it is. And it always goes better that way. And I never, ever sacrifice, uh, you know, like an element of price or conditions. And that's a matter of just setting goals and being, you know, uh, persistent about fairness, but, but the relationship piece, uh, you know, wins friends forever. I totally agree with you. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. And I think this is a a good moment uh, to pause our conversation just for a second to get some messages in from our sponsors. And uh, when we get back, I'd love to dig into your book a little bit more. Learn how to successfully navigate change, shape your school's success, and empower your teams with Harvard's Certificate in School Management and Leadership. Get online professional development that fits your schedule. Now enrolling for our February 2022 cohort. Courses include Leading Change, Leading School Strategy and Innovation, Leading People, and Leading Learning. Apply today at betterleadersbetterschools.com slash Harvard. That's betterleadersbetterschools.com slash Harvard. 
Are you automatically tracking online student participation data during COVID? Innovative school leaders across the country have started tracking online student participation using TeachFX because it's one of the most powerful ways to improve student outcomes during COVID, especially for English learners and students of color. Learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer at teachfx.com forward slash BLBS. That's teachfx.com forward slash BLBS. Today's show is brought to you by Organized Binder. Organized Binder develops the skills and habits all students need for success. During these uncertain times of distance learning and hybrid education settings, Organized Binder equips educators with a resource to provide stable and consistent learning routines so that all students have an opportunity to succeed, whether at home or in the classroom. Learn more at OrganizedBinder.com. All right, and we're back with Richard Shell, who is a global thought leader and senior faculty member at Wharton. And he also has a new book that's out right now. And I highly encourage all ruckus makers to pick up a copy. It's called The Conscious Code, Lead With Your Values, Advance Your Career. You know, we were just talking from a high level about uh, change, how to make change happen, uh, the importance of relationships and, and trust. And I want to pivot a bit, talk more about the book. And I just would like to ask first, uh, what is your what is your hope for the book now that it's out there? Sure. Thank you. Um, I, I, you know, I teach a course on responsibility for MBA students at Wharton. And, and by the way, Wharton students come from and go to the educational industry. I've, I've had uh, students who were secondary school teachers who come to Wharton to pivot their careers. And I have one of my my favorite former students started a charter school uh, program in Washington, D.C. It's now in five cities and uh, is a huge innovator in terms of secondary education. And when we get to the end of the program, I think you're going to ask me a question I want to answer with reference to my former students' educational entrepreneurship. My reason for writing this book and, and the, what I've learned from this course is that employees, managers, sort of not the you know people who are leaders, but they're leading from the middle or the bottom, they're not leaders like with titles and positions, are crying out for tools that can help them be more effective champions for their values. They see something going on, uh, uh, there's a deceit or a lack of accountability or, you know, people uh, uh, doing things that they shouldn't be doing with respect to student test scores or, uh, or administration, and there's some corruption in the school district at some high level. And the, the tendency is to sort of look away, keep your head down, uh, go home, you know, go to your loving family and complain about work and then go back the next day and do it again. And my thought is you're going to live a more satisfying and fulfilled life if you commit to your values as being part of your everyday at home, at work and everywhere in between in your community. And it, it's sort of it's sort of who you are. And the more often during the day you are at your best, being who you are at your best, the more you're going to feel like you've left the planet having occupied it as much as possible while you were here. And, you know, all the rest of the time you're alienated from yourself and you're sort of, you know, kind of talking yourself out of doing things. So this book is a book to, you know, listen to your conscience, follow some simple rules that the book uh, outlines about how to handle conflict, because when your conscience is activated it's usually because somebody's doing something wrong 
It may even be because you're tempted to do something wrong yourself. And uh, it's going to cause some turmoil. It's going to mean some ruckus making has to be done. And so this is really a ruckus maker's handbook for being effective at managing that conflict so that it comes out successfully. And, and one, of the, one of the, I think, critical tools is if you can get the change done without a ruckus, that's a good thing. If you can create a, a solution that finesses yeah. the collision and gets the right thing done and keeps everybody's egos in place, you know, so no one gets out of place and uh, and doesn't accuse other people of being immortal, immoral or unethical or bad. You succeeded. I mean, that's elegant. Uh, sometimes you can't do that. Sometimes you can't uh, finesse it. Sometimes you have to figure out how truth can speak to power and do it effectively. And the book talks about that too. Uh, but I think a lot of it has to do with self-confidence, uh, commitment to values, creativity, and then a really important, huge piece of it is creating good social alliances, being able to, to find your partner, the people that will be on your side and working with them so that you're not alone. I think one of the biggest problems comes when people think they have to do it all by themselves and then they pull away because they can't do it all by themselves. So no, you don't have to do it all by yourself. So your job one, find your friends. Yeah, those social alliances, I, I really appreciate you bringing that up because what was going through my mind is, uh, you know, doing it on my own feels risky and scary, right? But what I'm hearing you say, and correct me if I'm wrong, if, if you can find your partners uh, within your organization, this kind of, I think it goes back to the um, political savviness that's been a thread throughout this conversation, but that, that makes the uh, speaking your values, speaking that power at work, um, uh, less risky, less, less scary maybe, but yeah, you know, I, I get this, I get this intellectually and it's the right thing to do, but emotionally I can be a coward, right? Like it just feels scary to address, address a wrong or whatever it is. And I'd love to uh, leave the ruckus maker listening with uh, another practical tip. Um, I don't know if it's a case study or a scenario or something, but anything when they, when they, it's like Spidey sense, right? Like with Spider-Man, you know, the Spidey sense goes off. It's our gut. You know, we have wisdom in our bodies and it's saying, okay, something's wrong here. And then it's up to you. Are you going to address it or not? So what do we, what do we do in those moments? I mean, I'm going to, I have a chapter in the book and I'm going to go back to a point I, I, I made a second ago, the, the chapter is called the power of two. And, you know, you don't have to form a social movement. You just have to have one other person. And, you know, the most recent vivid example of this is uh, it, there's a, uh, it's, it's October and um, there's a big trial that was going on. It may still be going on while this podcast airs of uh, Elizabeth Holmes, who was the head of Theranos as a drug device company. And I was a big darling of Silicon Valley and it blew up a couple of years ago, but it blew up because two 23 year olds started working there on the same day. And they both independently observed that something was not right in this firm. There were stuff being covered up. There were test results being rigged. They saw this, they met at lunch and they looked at each other and they said, essentially, do you see what I see? And they both looked at each other and said, yes. Now, as soon as those two people both saw the same thing and they weren't crazy, they didn't get gaslighted. You know, they, they, they both said, you know, this is actually happening here. That alliance was what it took over a period of time 
and a lot of adventures. You know, it was, it was a lot of twists and turns. Uh, the book Bad Blood by John Carreyou is the long story. But at the end of the day, because they had their trusted partner, they were able to speak truth to power. The company was brought down. The CEO who's corrupt is on trial for fraud. Their COO is also on trial for fraud. And these two young people are now a little older and they're having their careers. You know, they, they did, it, it didn't, didn't end their lives to, to do this, but they, they both were very incremental, very careful, thoughtful. Uh, they asked people for options. They consulted legal advice, which is usually not a bad thing when you're in a high stakes situation. But that power of two, I think is, you know, you start scared, you start worried, you start uncertain, find one other person. And in an ideal world, there's someone who has a different personality than you do, because maybe you're conflict averse. Maybe you confrontation scares you. Just confrontation, it could be over anything. But you know somebody who's a little more conflict capable. You know, they, they seem to be able to they'd be a little brassier, but they also believe what you believe and they see what you see. Partner with them. Uh, your combination will allow you to be effective because you're probably a better diplomat than they are, uh, but they're probably a little more assertive than you are. And uh, and so you can complement your skill set with the understanding that, you know, everybody's different and you bring different skills, to, even to something like uh, figuring out how to correct a wrong in an organization. It's brilliant. Thank you. So, Richard, you know, I love asking uh, all my guests the same last two questions. And one of them is uh, if you could put a message on all school marquees around the world just for a single day, what would your message read? My message would uh, reflect the governing philosophy of Maria Montessori, uh, the great educational innovator who created the Montessori school system. And it would be a, a a message that would, would go right across every classroom and right across the front door of the, of the building. And it would be, don't change the child, change the environment. Uh, because I think most children are curious. Most children are, um, you know, want to get along with other children. Most children are creative and, and given the chance, given the right environment will blossom and thrive. And I think when you start down the road of disciplining the child for not doing their ABCs or, or condemning them uh, with uh, judgments that make them lose confidence, that's when the whole thing goes wrong. So don't change the child. Work on the environment. Great. And now you're building a school from the ground up. You're not limited by any resources. Your only limitation is your imagination. How would you build your dream school and what would be the top three priorities? All right. So this is where my former student, uh, who, uh, who I mentioned earlier, comes into play. So his name is Eric Adler, and he was an MBA student. His parents were entrepreneurs. And when I met him, he wanted to be a consultant, uh, business consultant, you know, uh, like many uh, high sort of energy, young 20 somethings who want to, you know, have a fancy business career. But a couple of years out from his MBA, his consulting thing didn't work out. And he partnered with a, another individual from another business school. And they decided to put together their dreams for a perfect school. And they wanted to do it in a way that was very entrepreneurial. And so they created something called the Seed Schools, S-E-E-D. And they strike me as as close to perfect as you can get. What they did, they first they had a mission to serve underrepresented young people in very, very poor neighborhoods in urban locations. So they located their first school in DC. They had to 
you know, lobby like crazy, but they, they actually got a variance from a lot of the uh, sort of uh, regulations and stuff that require certain degrees of, you know, unionization and standardization and all that stuff. And they were clever politically and they, and they got uh, some, um, some charter school buys. And then, and this is crucial, they wanted, they had both gone to private school when they were, you know, in high school. And they realized a residential setting was the missing link because you take kid in a very challenged, traumatic environment and you send them back there every day. Chances are pretty good. They're going to get traumatized and that that's going to be this where it stops. So they actually raised money and built a building that kids could sleep in and go to school in in the middle of D.C. And it's a charter school. And they went out and found the best and brightest young frustrated teachers who were from a lot of different places. And they offered this vision. You're going to live in this school. You're going to teach these kids. You know, they're going to be yours and they're, you're going to be theirs. And, and we're going to, we're going to, the goal was they all go to college. And in the, in the public schools in DC, where at the time, I think, I think, you know, a certain percentage, like a third didn't even finish high school. And among the ones that did finish high school, it was very low percentage that actually was able to go into college of some kind. So residential, 24-7, open ticket for how you make the curriculum, residential teachers. Um, they did go home on the weekends, so they, they have them for five days a week. And after the first five years, they had a whole class go through and graduate. Every single one of them got into college. And they have a follow-up system so that they track them in college, uh, so that they, they don't abandon them. They don't say, you're, all right, you're in college now, you know, we're done. They have counselors that stay in touch with them from the high school uh, to make sure that they, you know, stay on track, that they are doing the things they need to do. Because they're still from challenged backgrounds and traumatized childhoods. And, you know, there's a lot of things that can go wrong for people anywhere along the way. So immersion would be one of the principles create an immersive environment in which learning is just everybody's uh, life. And it isn't just the classroom. You know, they're learning from everything that happens in their social environment, in their social relationships, and in uh, the, the learning. Clear goal. Everybody goes to college that wants to. I mean, you know, if somebody wants to go in the military, they're not going to say you can't go to the military. But that, uh, but they go to college uh, and they uh, they have the the infrastructure to allow them to do that, and then follow up. That is, you don't leave. That you don't. These are your people now. They're yours for life, and so you provide resources to them. You're there for them uh, as their journey continues until they decide that they don't need you anymore. And then they'll come back and be a teacher for you. Right. So, uh, so that's my dream school. And it's, and it's interesting because it's not a dream. Exactly. Well, Richard, thanks so much for being a part of the better leaders, better schools podcast. We covered a lot of ground and basically, uh, of everything we talked about today, what's one thing you want a ruckus maker to remember? Always put your values as your top priority at work. Thanks for listening to the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast, Ruckus Maker. If you have a question or would like to connect, my email, daniel at betterleadersbetterschools.com or hit me up on Twitter at Alien Earbud. If the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast is helping you grow as a school leader, then please help us serve more ruckus makers like you. 
you can subscribe, leave an honest rating and review, or share on social media with your biggest takeaway from the episode. Extra credit for tagging me on Twitter at Alien Earbud and using the hashtag BLBS. Level up your leadership at betterleadersbetterschools.com and talk to you next time. Until then, class dismissed. Thank you.